So Revelations chapter 11, if you're there, say amen. amen. If you ain't there, say hold on, Pastor. All right, here we go. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, them fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. <clears throat> and if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, but it's where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of... I'm sorry, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And this is the end. When the, seventh, when the seventh trumpet blows, this is it. The final wrath of God is poured out onto the world. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and You have begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged came. And the time for rewarding Your servants and the prophets and the saints came. And those who fear Your name, both small and great. And the time came for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You can be seated. Clear as mud? All right, we can go home. Now, um, before we dive into this, uh, what is declared one of the most disputed chapters and the hardest to understand chapters in all the Word of God. 
We're going to tackle it this morning, and we're going to see what God has to say in it. But before we get started, you and I have no power to do this. You know that, right? The only way that we are ever going to get this is if God opens our eyes and God opens our hearts to receive what He has for us. And so I want to pray this morning for that very thing. So let me pray first, all right? Father, I come to You and I just I know that unless You open this Word up to us, we're, we're not going to get anything from it. And so, Father, I'm, I'm asking You right now that Your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, would work in our minds, and that, Father, You would renew our minds this morning, that You would show us Your ways, that You would show us what You're doing in this world and what You're going to do in this world. And, Father, I pray that no one leaves here today without receiving what You have in store for them. God, I believe that when You send Your Word out, You will cause it to accomplish its purpose. And so, Father, I pray this morning that even though this is a difficult chapter, I pray this morning that it would not be so difficult that we don't leave here without Your purpose being, being accomplished. So, Father, You do Your work. We will do our part. We will listen. We will receive. Father, we, we wait on You. So, Lord, we ask You to do this. It's only by Your power that this will take place, and we know it. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw the first part of an interlude that, or I say last week, it's actually two weeks ago, we saw the first part of an interlude that took place between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. I can't go back and re-preach that, but if you were to go back to Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7, you'll notice that whenever the seals were being broken, so basically what you have here is you have this scroll, and this scroll is rolled up, and it has seven seals across it. And as each seal is broken, there is a judgment that is poured out onto the earth. And by the time you get to the sixth seal and it's open, before the seventh seal opens, that is whenever we have an interlude in chapter 7. And so we have this pause in chapter 7 that shows us the ministry that is going to be taking place in this earth while the final seven years of tribulation are taking place. Part of that ministry is that God is going to, he's going to save 144,000 Jews that are basically going to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls. That's what the Apostle Paul was a Jewish man that God saved and he became Christian. And he went in and he changed the world through what God was doing in his life. Now, when this interlude takes place, during this seven years of tribulation, there are going to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls that are going throughout this world and they're preaching the gospel. And they are pleading with people to repent, to turn from their sin, and to come to Christ for salvation. And then we see an image of what's taking place in heaven while these 144,000 are preaching. And what we learn is that during the seven years of tribulation, most people that are saved are actually going to die for their faith. And then we see that they are in heaven and they're crying out to God for vengeance and they're crying out to God, how long, Lord, before you take out wrath for what the world has done to us? And so we see in chapter 7 this ministry, great ministry taking place on earth as these Jewish uh, Apostle Pauls are spreading the gospel. And then we see the picture in heaven as, they, as peop, a multitude, it says an innumerable multitude from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, they're in heaven. 
And they're praising God and they're asking God for vengeance and God's saying, just a little longer, just a little longer, just a little longer. And then we, we move into the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal opens, it gives way to seven trumpet judgments. And so you had seven seals that when they were open, and basically I want you to understand it like this. Everything that God is going to do to take back control of this world from the usurper, Satan, is in this scroll. And as the seal is broken, the details are given as to how God is going to take it back. How God is going to take wrath out on this world. And then when you get to the seventh seal, the scroll completely opens. And then you have seven trumpet judgments that are in there. And the details, when this trumpet sounds, this is what's going to happen. When this trumpet sounds, this is what's going to happen. But by the time you get to the sixth trumpet, and it opens up the wrath of God on the world, then you have an interlude in chapters 10 and 11. And so what we saw is that in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we also have a vision of the ministry that is going to be taking place on this earth during the seven years of tribulation. And we also get a vision into heaven again as to what's taking place there. And so in chapter 10 a couple weeks ago, we saw that God gave John a vision. And, and this great mighty angel steps down with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And he's holding this scroll in his hands. And he tells John, he says, the delay will be no more. In other words, this is it. The end has come. God is going to take care of all evil from this moment on. It's here. In other words, when the seventh trumpet blows, that's it. That's it. The end is here. And now it's all going to play out. It's going to be rapid fire. The seventh trumpet, just like the seventh seal opened up seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet will also open up seven bowls of God's wrath. And they're going to be poured out one right after the other and it will take place in a very short amount of time. And all of God's wrath is going to be poured out on the evil in this world. But when this angel steps down and declares, no more, the delay is over. And the reason we say delay is because right now, God doesn't just wipe out evil. Right now, God still allows for your sin to go on, right? He don't just extinguish it right away. He, the, the Romans chapter uh, 2 says, don't presume on, or don't disregard the riches of His forbearance, the riches of His patience with you. Right now there is delay. And that delay is for you to repent, to come to Christ for forgiveness. But when this time comes, there will be no more delay. And when the delay is over, the Bible says here that all of God's wrath is going to be poured out. But back to the little scroll the angel is holding. He tells John to go get that little scroll from the angel and take it and eat it. He said, it's going to be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And ultimately what he means is this, when you look at all God is going to do to destroy sin, to destroy not just sin, but sinners. You know, I know we say this all the time, God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. Yeah, there's a level of truth to that, but I want you to understand something. When God destroys evil, He don't just destroy sin, He destroys sinners. 
He don't just send sin to hell and then all of the sinners go to heaven. He destroys sin and He destroys sinners. For all of those that are not in Christ Jesus and have their sin covered by the blood of the Lamb, you will experience the wrath of God. But right now we have opportunity and delay. And so when John takes this scroll and he sees all that God is going to do to both sin and to sinners, it's sweet in his mouth because he sees the end of the reign of Satan. He sees that God has begun to reign and that the new kingdom is here. But then in his belly, it's bitter because he sees all that God is going to do here as well. And then the angel ends his word in verse um, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. He says here, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So ultimately, here's the point. John, you got to keep preaching. Wales, we got, we got to keep preaching because the delay is still here. The the angel has not set his feet down and said the delay will be no more. The seventh trumpet has not sounded. And right now, John, the ministry that must take place on this earth is you. You must again prophesy. You must keep preaching. Uh, We have to keep preaching this gospel while there is still delay because there is coming a day when the delay will be no more. And sinners will perish, not just sin. And some of those sinners are people that you and I love. And so we must preach, we must prophesy. So that's the image that we had in chapter 10. Here in chapter 11, we have a vision that seems to focus on the Jews. It seems to focus on the fact that God is going to save Israel. And when I say Israel, I'm talking about the physical seed of Abraham. You remember, God made a promise to Abraham and then it came down to Isaac and then it came down to Jacob who later became Israel and passed on to his twelve tribes. And that promise was, you are my people and I will be your God. And that promise goes back to the one he made between him and Abraham. And so what we see in chapter 11 is... The, t- the final plan, if you will. The final plan of how God is going to save physical Israel. He's not just going to leave them behind. Let me give you a few uh, scriptures to prove that to you. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. I'll read through them quickly because I can't spend a lot of time here. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, it says this. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? And here's what Elijah said to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? And here's God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, there is a remnant. When Elijah looked at all Israel, he said, They're lost, God. I'm the only one that serves you. And God said, No, sir. No, sir. There are 7,000 people that you don't even know about that have not bowed their knee that still serve me, that still stay true to me. And then he says in verse 5, So too, at this present time, There is a remnant, 
A remnant chosen by grace. Now I'm going to skip over for sake of time to verse 25. So go down with me to the same chapter, Romans 11, verse 25. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob or Israel. And this will be my covenant that I will make with them when I take away their sins. And then look at this next part in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now what he means is that for the, the Jews were originally chosen to be the witness to the world for God, right? God told Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But instead of them fulfilling this command, they saw themselves as the haves and everybody else as the have-nots. They said, we are God's people and you are not. Well, in the process of this, when Christ came because they rejected Him, the Bible says that God put a partial hardening on their hearts, a partial blindness, so that they wouldn't see, so that they wouldn't turn to Christ. And He says He did that so that the Gentiles had the opportunity to come in. But that partial hardening is not going to last forever. God has not forgotten His people. He is going to bring the remnant that is there in Israel into Him. And so then whenever you keep following along with me, He says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And then look at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God is going to save Israel. He's not going to leave them out. He is going to remove this blindness. There is going to come a day when the Jews of the world, the remnant that God has chosen, they begin with 144,000 that we see in chapter 7. And then these 144,000 go out and preach. But then we have this ministry in chapter 11 where God sends two witnesses to preach. And during this time, God is going to remove the hardness of their heart. He's going to remove the blindness for their eyes. And they're going to see Jesus. And God's going to make a covenant with them. And it's all going to take place through what happens here in chapter 11. Are y'all tracking with me? Got a few. <laughs> Alright, so again, here's the point. Don't get lost with me. You just need the context. God is going to save Abraham's physical seed. He has put a partial blindness and hardness over their hearts until now. Until this point up to here. And then He's going to remove it because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. He promised Abraham, I'm going to save your seed. And guess what? He's going to save them. Now that don't mean He's going to save all of them, but there's a remnant. There's a remnant of physical Israel that God is going to save. And that's the ministry that we see taking place here in Revelation chapter 11. It's God's final plan to rescue and save Israel. Now in verse 1 of chapter 11, with that context, y'all stay with me. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now here's one thing that you need to understand. When this is written, the temple has been destroyed. 
This book was written in 90, somewhere around 90 A.D. When it's written, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The temple has been gone. The only thing left is the western wall, the wailing wall as they call it in Israel. The temple has been gone for 20 years when this is written. And so when John gets this message and, and he says, rise and measure the temple, this is the same thing we saw in the days of old when uh, Zechariah got the message um, that you're going to go and measure and this is what the temple is going to be when it's rebuilt. And so this is just another vision that says the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so we see here in this seven years of tribulation that there is going to be a third temple that is going to be built in Jerusalem when all of this takes place. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, I want to read that to you. What we find here is that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel. He's going to make a covenant that they're going to be able to come back to their homeland. They're going to be able to sacrifice and resume their worship in their temple. Read verse 27 with me in Daniel chapter 9. And he shall make a strong covenant, talking about the Antichrist, with many for one week. Now that word week, we translate as week, but it means a period of seven. It actually means a period of seven years. And so the Antichrist is going to make a strong covenant with the Jews for a period of seven years, the last seven years of tribulation. And he shall put an end... I'm sorry, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now what's half of seven? Three and a half, right? So three and a half years he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out. And so here's what we need to understand. During this last seven years of tribulation, a temple is going to be rebuilt somewhere around the very first part of the seven years. For seven years, the Antichrist is going to... the Jews are going to think he is the greatest leader that there has ever been. The world is going to believe he's the greatest leader that's ever been. But then, at three and a half years into this seven-year period, he puts a stop to it. And Jesus and Daniel tells us, and even Paul tells us, that what happens is that He comes in and He sets up an image of Himself in the Holy of Holies and He demands the world to worship Him. And anyone who does not worship Him, He kills. And so the world begins to worship this Antichrist and David or Daniel calls this the abomination of desolation. It literally is a word, the abomination means a detestable thing. Desolation means to be horrified or stunned that the temple of God becomes the temple of worship for the Antichrist. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, look what He says here. In Matthew 24, verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, in other words, that image has been set up and the Antichrist is demanding worship, right? When you see this happen, in verse 16 he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. Run to the mountains. The Jews need to run at this moment. you got to get out of Jerusalem. Get as far away as you can. 
He says in verse 17, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his coat. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, the remnant, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so there again, we see that Daniel spoke of this, Jesus spoke of this, that a temple is going to be rebuilt. Jesus even told them, this temple is going to be torn down and in three days I'm going to rebuild it. Jesus knew the second temple was going to be destroyed. But here He says at the end of time, the abomination of desolation is going to take place. A temple is going to be rebuilt. The Antichrist is going to come in and He is going to set up Himself to be worshipped. And when that happens, Jews, run. Run from Jerusalem as fast as you can. Because the Antichrist, the beast as Revelation calls him, is going to make war on the Jews. And we see that in... um, Let me see where that is. I think that's Revelations chapter 13. Revelations chapter 13 verse 5, we see a picture of this. He says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And if you do the math on that, do you know how many years 42 months is? Three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And so there again, here's the picture. I'm just setting up Revelations chapter 11 for you. The temple is rebuilt, right? For three and a half years, the Jews are allowed to worship and sacrifice. And then at three and a half years, the Antichrist turns on them. And he sets himself up and says, the world will now worship me. And anyone who doesn't will be killed. And the Jews run. They flee to the mountains and they hide. But during this time, the beast is making war on the ones that are still there. And he is trying to slaughter all the Jews. And again, you'll see more about this in Revelation chapter 13. But during this time, God is going to have two supernatural witnesses that the beast will try to kill, but he can't kill until their job is done. And these two supernatural witnesses have great powers and they are going to be ministering to God's chosen people, Abraham's seed. Now again, you need to be able to see that at three and a half years, everything takes this turn. And the tribulation becomes so great that no one would survive it if it were not for the grace of God during this time. And that's exactly what happens. Now, I want you to know this too. Did you know that there is a group right now? And I welcome you. If you've got your phone, you can Google it right now. This will be the first time the preacher ever said, you can use your phone during my sermon. All you have to do is look up the Temple Institute. 
the group is already in place in Israel right now and ready to build the third temple right now. Did you also know, and you're welcome to Google this right now as well, did you also know that in December, December the 10th, I believe it was, in 2018, that they have already built the altar outside the walls of Jerusalem that has already been dedicated to go in the new temple. The altar is already built. The altar has already been dedicated. They are already doing sacrifices on this altar. Everything is in place for this to take place. I know you've been hearing this your whole life. The time is here. The time is here. The time is here. And, and we may not see it in our lifetime. But I am telling you, in the last two years, all the pieces have been lining up. Everything has been getting in place to where all that I'm telling you this morning is ready to take place. It's happening. Google it. <laughs> if you trust Google, I don't care, or, or as Nick would say, duck, duck, go. I think that's the one he uses, right? Use duck, duck, go. Whichever one you want to use, the point is, you can find it. And you'll see that everything I'm telling you is coming into play right now. So here in verse 1, John is given a measuring rod. And he's told to measure the temple, measure the altar, and again, the altar is already there, and measure all the people who worship there. And this would be who worships in the temple? Jews, right? Christians don't go to the temple to sacrifice, correct? Alright, so we're talking about Jews here. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Now the court outside the temple was called the Gentile court. It was the place that, that Gentiles had to stay because they were not allowed to go into the temple or into the, even the inner court. And so the outside court is called the Gentile court. And he says don't measure that because it is going to be given over to the nations and they will trample it for 42 months. Now remember, how many years is 42 months? Three and a half years. Alright. So here we see that God is showing John that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Jesus will... Oh, I'm sorry, Jesus. Jews will resume worship in it for the first three and a half years. But the last three and a half years, the abomination of desolation is going to take place. The Gentiles will take over Jerusalem and they, by being led by the Antichrist, they will make war on all of the Jews and all of the saints of God. So that's what you see in verse 1 and 2. Now go with me to verse 3. In verse 3, we're introduced to the two witnesses that are going to be preaching during this time. These are preachers that God has sent to preach primarily to the Jews in the final 1260 days. Notice what it says. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Anybody want to take a guess how many years is 1260 days? Thank you. So again, all the numbers add up. Everything matches here that says all of this has happened during this last three and a half years of the final seven years of tribulation. And so we have these two witnesses that were introduced here. First thing we see about them, they are granted authority. They have authority. Now remember, the Antichrist makes war on all of God's chosen during this time, but these two have authority and they cannot be harmed until their ministry is done. So the Antichrist will likely be trying to kill them this whole time, but no matter what he tries, he cannot kill them. Matter of fact, you're going to see the 
power that they were given here in just a little bit. But the point here is they're granted authority from God. The next thing we see, they are witnesses. Now here's what a witness is. Someone who testifies to others what they know to be true. If you go to court and you call witnesses, the point is they are there to testify to the judge and everyone there that this is what I know to be true. I am a witness to the truth. And so they are people who are here to preach the gospel, to preach judgment on sin. And so they are here to also preach that the Antichrist is not God. As Jews are coming to this temple, they're sitting here going, don't go in there, don't do this, this is not the way they're preaching and they are testifying to the truth during this time. We also see that they prophesy. They will prophesy for 1260 days. In other words, they speak the inspired Word of God. God gives them the message of judgment on sin. He gives them the message of necessity of repentance. And it is necessary to repent. I hope you know that. The necessity of repentance and the necessity to turn to God through Christ. And this is the message that they are preaching this whole time. And then it says, they do it clothed in sackcloth. So the last element we see about these witnesses is even though they preach in authority and truth, they also preach in humility and mourning. They're humble. Whenever you would see somebody at the lowest of the low, when the world was throwing something on you that, that, that just brought you to your lowest, the Bible says they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. And that was a sign of their humility. It was a sign of their mourning. And so here we see these guys mourning for the world, mourning for what is taking place, and pleading with people for judgment on sin is coming, and you must repent, and yet the world hates them for it. They hate them for it. And that, that, that I mean, you just think about how the world hates Christians today, right? See, we're all rebels against God. You don't believe this. You say, oh, I'm not a rebel against God. Well, let me prove it to you. You're not a rebel against God unless God steps into your life and says, hey, don't do that. See, you think you love God. Everybody in here, think you probably think that you do. But what if I were to come to you right now with the Word of God and say to you directly in your life, God says, thou shalt not this. God says, thou shalt not live together before marriage. If I say that to the world today, what do they say to me? God says, thou shalt not lie with a man the way that he lies with a woman. If I say that to the world today, what do they say to me? God says, thou shalt not... I mean, the point being, God comes in and says, don't lie, you're a liar. And we look back at God and go, I'm not a liar. We look back at God and go, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, right? In our hearts, we think we love God and the world thinks they love God. I saw a homosexual couple here just recently that, um, that entered into um, a, a, a sinful relationship. Um, and one of their comments was, I just want to thank God. And I thought to myself, you don't even have a clue who God is. And I'm not just picking on homosexuals. I'm talking to adulterers today too. I'm talking to uh, people that have sex before marriage today too. 
I'm talking about sexual immorality. I'm talking about sin in general. The point being is, we don't want God. I think I do. But let God tell you today, if I come to you today and say, you must repent, I'm telling you, your sinful heart will hate me for it. And the reason your sinful heart will hate me for it is because your sinful heart hates God. Now that's the truth, whether you want to see it or not. And so, if you think the world hates Christians today, wait until these two guys come on the scene and see the way the world hates them. They hate them so bad that whenever they're finally killed, they celebrate and exchange gifts. The wicked witch is dead. I mean, they're dancing around the yellow brick road talking about she, he's gone, he's gone. And they are literally celebrating. And you'll see all this here in a minute. So that's, that's, um, that's the introduction to these two. But who are they? I mean, who are these two witnesses? Well, verse 4, he tells us exactly who they are. So here we go. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. There you go. That's who they are. I don't know what you're thinking. That don't do anything at all for me, right? Right? So let's try to break this down. Because even though it don't do anything at all for you, let me tell you, John understood it. Because he understood Zechariah chapter 4. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 4 and you're going to see what this means. In Zechariah chapter 4, we're talking about the second temple is fixing to be rebuilt and God has called Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor to come together and lead these people to build the foundation of this temple. But they have all kinds of opposition against them to building this temple. And so in Zechariah chapter 4, an angel talks with Joshua the high priest and this is what it says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with the bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what I've called you to do is not going to be by your might, not going to be by your power, but by my power and by my Spirit. And verse 7 says, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Talking about the temple. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which reigns throughout the whole world or the whole earth. Then I said to him, Well, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So let me just put it all in context for you, right? Here's the vision. Joshua and Zerubbabel 
are two olive trees. And their job is to preach this message and to build this temple. And we have this lamp that normally you would have to refill with oil to keep it going. But instead, God says, by my power and my spirit, I'm going to keep the oil flowing from this tree to this bowl. And it's going to always stay full. And my power and my anointing will always run to these two people so that they will accomplish what I have called them to do. And here's all that the vision is telling John in Revelation chapter 11. It's saying, these are two people, two people, two human beings that God is going to raise up and by His power and His authority and His Spirit, they are going to accomplish everything that I'm fixing to tell you they're going to accomplish. Because when you read their, what they're going to do here in a minute, you're going to go, this sounds crazy. This sounds like this is some kind of fairy tale stuff. But it's not. They have God's power. They have God's Spirit. They have God's anointing. And they will accomplish everything that is said here. Now some people say that this is um, <coughs> excuse me, Enoch and Elijah. Some people say this is Moses and Elijah. Or it could just be two people like Joshua and Zerubbabel. Just two men that God anoints and gives His power to. We don't really know. And so we can't be dogmatic and say that it is these two people. But there are good reason to believe it could be it. Now remember, Enoch and Elijah didn't die. They were called up. God just called them home. They walked with God. That was it. And so, yes, it's possible that it could be Enoch and Elijah returned because the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. They, they never died. So it could be them. It could also be Moses and Elijah. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember who came down and talked with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And so it very well could be them. And not only that, but look at verse 5 and 6 of Revelation 11 to see some of the things they do to see why people think it's Moses and Elijah. It says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. You remember Elijah? You remember when he was battling the prophets of Baal on uh, Mount Carmel? You remember what he did? Called down fire from heaven to consume his enemies? And so we have the sign here that looks like that. It also says they have in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. And so that's exactly what Elijah did during that time as well. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. You remember what Moses did in Egypt? And they have to strike the earth with every other kind of plague as often as they desire. And so here we see qualities and characteristics that says it could be Moses and Elijah that have returned. And some preachers, uh, I believe David Jeremiah is one of them, have dogmatically said this is who they believe it is. Um, it may be. I don't know. But here's what I do know. It is going to be two people that God anoints for this purpose. They will have these powers. Literally, they will preach in humility, but if someone wants to harm them, fire will come from their mouth and consume them. They will strike the earth with plagues. The rain will shut up, uh, uh, the sky will shut up, and no rain. And so all of these things will happen. But then go to verse 7 with me. Because remember, the Antichrist is going to be trying to kill them. He's making war on all the saints during this time. But he can't until their job is done. 
It says, when they are finished with their testimony, God allows the Antichrist to kill them. The beast that rises up from the bottomless pit. And so God allows the Antichrist to finally make war on them and kill them. But not before their job is done. When their job is done, God is going to use even their death to bring even more Jews to salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. And we'll see that here in a minute. Verse 8, let's just walk through these a little quickly. Their bodies lie dead in the streets of Jerusalem. As the Antichrist reigns and the Gentiles take over, remember this happens during the 42 months, Jerusalem becomes like Sodom and Egypt. That's the reason it says it's symbolically called Sodom. The reason Judah, Ju Jerusalem symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt is because its sinfulness during the Gentiles taking over is, such a, is to such a magnitude that it looks like Sodom. And the reason they call it symbolically Egypt is because they're oppressing God's people during this time. Literally, they, the Antichrist is making war on them and trying to oppress them and kill them. And so during this time, it is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, but it is the place where the Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. And so we're still talking about the holy city. We're talking about Jerusalem. But their bodies lie in the streets and they lie there dead. For three days they lay there. And so in verse 9 it says, for three whole days the world watches them. And now up until many, several years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. But with satellite TV today, guess what? Don't you think this is going to be a story? Don't you think CNN is going to be all over this? Praising... Praising the, 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 the one that killed these two. And so they leave their body laying dead and the whole world watches. They refuse to bury their bodies. They hated these two because they hate God. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Guys, this is Christmas season. Because these two guys are killed. And all they were doing was preaching the truth. And preaching the truth in humility at that. And the world hates them. And the world kills them. And they rejoice and make merry when they're dead. And they exchange presents. And the reason being, it says, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You know why they'd been a torment? Because all they were doing was saying, you can't keep living this way. Guys, you can't keep living this way. You must repent and turn to Christ. That is your only hope. And that's the whole point behind it all, right? Repentance. Come to Christ. Kiss the Son. And we'll understand where I get that title here in just a minute. But then in verse 11, God breathes life into them and great fear falls on everybody who sees it. <laughs> can't you imagine that? These guys have laid dead in the street for three days and the world has celebrated. And all of a sudden they stand up. They stand up. And next we have this personal two-man rapture that takes place. As God says in verse 12, Hey, come up here. And literally in the, in the moment, they go up to heaven to be with Christ. And verse 13 says, At that very hour a great earthquake strikes Jerusalem and 7,000 people are killed. One-tenth of the city is killed. 
but the fear of God causes the rest of Israel to be saved. Look what he says. And so God even has a purpose in these two witnesses dying and being raised from the dead and the earthquake. And so we see here that the rest feared God and gave glory unto God during this time. Look what it says. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. God is going to save Israel no matter what it takes. You see that, right? Their heart, their heart is hard. Their eyes are blinded. But He's going to open those eyes and He's going to prick that heart and they're going to turn and they're going to give glory to God. And so that's what you see happening here in Revelations chapter 11. This is God's ministry to Israel during this last three and a half years. And it is a terrible time. It is a very tough time. But then it says in verse 14, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And the third woe is going to be the final trumpet. And so in verse 15 we see, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So here comes the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. Now we get to see the vision in heaven. We saw the ministry on earth. And now we get to see the vision in heaven. Y'all following me? And so he says here, There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and You have begun to reign. It's a sweet moment. And then look what they say. It says, The nations raged, but Your wrath came. In other words... The, the people from the time of Adam have raged. They have, they have rebelled against you and rebelled against you. They raged. But the time of your wrath, it came. And now the rebellion will be no more. You have delivered Israel. You have delivered the, the elect. And now the time of the rebellion will be no more. It's over. And then not only that, but also the time, the time for the dead, the time has come for your wrath, the time for the dead to be judged has come, and the time to reward your servants, the prophets, the saints, all those who fear your name, both small and great, the time has come for their reward. And then the time has come for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The time is here. Now I want to close this morning and go to Psalm chapter 2 because Psalm chapter 2 is where I get the title of my message, Kiss the Sun, because this is the point. This is the point. Psalm chapter 2, actually Revelations 11 is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. And all I'm going to do is read it for you. I'm not going to break into it, I'm just going to read it. So let's read Psalm chapter 2 together to see what we're seeing here. The psalmist says this, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? In other words, guys, why is your rebel heart continuing to turn against God? Why won't you surrender? Why won't you turn away from your sin? Why won't you quit living in it? Saying, I love God, and yet this is what I practice every day? Are y'all following me? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, God, we don't want your ways. Don't tell us what to do. We can decide for ourselves what to do. But then look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Talking about Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, I'm going to give my Son, Christ, every bit of this. It's all going to belong to Him. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's exactly what you see happen when the seventh trumpet blows. All right, Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And look at verse 12. What's the first three words? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you this morning. And it goes back to the message I preached two weeks ago. The point is repentance. Please don't think you're going to keep living in your sin and you're going to keep rejecting God, even though in your heart you say, I love God. I love God. I'm all about God. I don't want His Word. I don't really want to pray. I don't want to come out of my sin. But I love God. Y'all with me? And here's what He's saying. Will you please be wise? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The Lord sits in His throne in heaven and laughs. And laughs. Because you think you're going to keep going on in this and keep living this way. And He says to you, here's what you must do. Kiss the Son. Turn your life to Jesus and repent of your sin today. Listen, repentance, I'm not talking about stumbles. Repentance is a daily thing. Y'all know that, right? I'm talking about sins that we choose to continually just keep living in and practicing. And so this morning, my prayer is that before you see any of this take place, that you will humble yourself, hit your knees and say, God, I'm sorry for my rebel heart. I'm sorry that I don't love you the way you deserve to be loved. And I surrender to you and I repent of my sin and I kiss your Son whom you sent to die for all of my sins. And I thank you for it. And I throw my hands up and surrender and I trust in you today. And that is your only hope. My prayer for you today is that you would kiss the Son. And if you don't know how to go about doing that, you come take me by the hand today and say, Pastor, I need to repent of my sin and I need to be saved. Or maybe you just need to repent of the sin that you're choosing to live in because you do love God and because you do love the Son. Whatever it is this morning, I'm asking you, don't get mad at me and get ready to kill me. (laughs) Look at your heart 
and understand if the Word of God points something out in your life that don't belong, it ain't me you hate. It's Him. Get on your knees and surrender and say, God, I'm sorry. You are God. I'm not. And I surrender to you. And I kiss the Son.